You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads take us to places that are foreign to many? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, we take a deep dive into the world of violence and injustice, followed by an even deeper dive into the collapse of a dynasty, followed by a new edition of Rory's Island. My first guest, Nicholas Davidoff, is the author of The Other Side of Prospect, a story of violence, injustice, in an American city. And Nicholas, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here again. So you're not going to remember, but I will, and I'll tell you why. Many years ago, the first time we had a conversation was for your first book, The Catcher Was a Spy About Moberg. Terrific, terrific book. So I'm thrilled to have you back again, talk about your latest book, The Other Side of Prospect. Well, thank you. So my first question is... I remember. Well, thank you for saying that, even if you didn't, but thank you. Um, Of all of your books, in a sense, it's your most demanding in terms of research and also the most personal. I think that's somewhat true. I mean, to me, maybe these books, I guess there are two kinds of writers, right? There are people who are who who have a specific area of expertise, which they deepen and deepen and deepen if they spend their 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 life writing books uh, related to the maybe we could say one one general thing. Right. And then they're generalists like me, people who write about many different subjects. I also I also just think it's true though that every writer is pretty identifiable after a while. And I would just notice that my books from the catcher was the spy on all have, have to do with outsiders who begin really at the periphery of what might be called American culture. And then through both force of talent and personality, and also through compelling American institutions make their way into the cultural mainstream and influence it. And for sure, this book took eight years, which is the longest time I've ever spent on a book. And it required over 500 interviews, which was really something. But on the other hand, each each book really does have its challenges. I mean, The Catcher Was a Spy was about was about a secret profession, right? It's about spies. And I had no idea how to find out about spies when I began. And so that was something quite different. Another book was about my grandfather, who was an economist, and trying to learn about someone like that who really tried to keep his life. Uh, he just liked to mess with people about what the true story of his life was. So they all have their challenges. But that's a long way of saying that while that may be so, this book really was unique in the amount of rigor I, I felt it took to understand what I was trying to do. Writers also have tend to have themes. And one of my takeaways is I think you're writing about at least addressing, at least making me think about that, a caste system in America, the have and the have-nots. I think that's right. I think there's no secret that one of the issues of our time, I mean, we could call this the age of inequality, right? I mean, anybody who just looks at the metrics can see that there are radically different life experiences in the United States in terms of who has and who doesn't, but even more so something that interested me from the time that I was a child and interested really confused me 
is the juxtaposition in close geographical proximity between people who are living really affluent, prosperous lives and people who are really, really struggling. And while this book is set in my hometown of New Haven, Connecticut, this is really an American phenomenon and would be familiar to anyone who grew up in New York or in Hartford or in Philadelphia or Baltimore or Durham, North Carolina, or on across the United States. There are even, you know, formal barriers in many communities. You can see them in Ohio and you can, in Cleveland and you can see them in Kansas City and you can see them in so many other places that divide communities, um, whether racially or just in terms of class. And um, yes, this is, a, this, is, this is a feature of our country. It's been there for a long time and it's, uh, it has its consequences the way everything does. Now, certain points in the history of this country, there have been inflection points. And one of them I think you raise is what I would call the Great Migration. And interestingly enough, there's people talking about right now reverse migration back to the South. So how does that play a role? Because a lot of your characters, family trees, go back to South Carolina. Right. Well, one reason that New Haven is a wonderful place to write about is because it's a small city with issues of bigger places. It's a really compressed version of much bigger American cities and in its in its virtues and in its sources of struggle. And um, New Haven's experience is much like the experience of cities up and down the eastern northern part of the eastern seaboard, which is to say that every prominent wave of immigration comes through New Haven beginning in the mid 19th century. I mean, industry brings immigrants and immigrants come to the particular neighborhood that I wrote about, which is called Newhallville. It's named after a, car a carriage manufacturer named Newhall who had to build homes to house his immigrant workers. Um, and beginning, th those were at first, I think, mainly Irish workers. And then over time, there was Italian immigration and, you know, Eastern European and German. And over time, it comes to the migration, which is called the Great Migration, of African-Americans from the, from the South, often the rural South, to northern cities like New Haven. And that's why this neighborhood, Newhallville, which had always been a source of uplift and social mobility for people who came and were just starting out in life and maybe didn't have a lot of education or didn't particularly have certain kinds of skills yet could grow as individuals and grow their families and eventually move from that first house in Newhallville up and out. And it's much, um, it's kind of hackneyed to talk about the American dream, but the American dream is a very pressing idea for a lot of people. And that idea to some degree was fulfilled by this neighborhood. And it was fulfilled for the first generation of African-Americans who came from the South, who settled in Newhallville, and it became a thriving, flourishing neighborhood that of, I would say it was a, a, a almost a, an iteration of a southern neighborhood in right, the north. Right. Um, and to this day, you can still, if you drive around New Haven, you can see so many cars with South Carolina license plates. I mean, the connection between particularly South Carolina and New Haven is really strong. But then as uh, as industry begins to either fail or go elsewhere, this this means that the factories are closing and trouble comes when the work goes away, right? And so the main factory over time that had been the source of um, the source of jobs and economy in New Haven was the Winchester Repeating Arms Factory, particularly during the First and Second World Wars when many, many thousands of people worked there. But, um, you know, I guess you could also say one of the ironies is, is that 
you know, there was no real violence when in, 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 in that neighborhood, when there were, when there were many jobs on offer at Winchester, but when the gun factory closes, suddenly there's the, there, there's, there's gun violence. And so the, this is really the second generation of people who are coming during the great migration who arrive and the jobs that were once there that provided that kind of uplift for their forebears certainly aren't there anymore. And there's no real post-industrial solution. So this is what I was beginning to see when I was a child growing up in New Haven, which is to say that, you know, I had a struggling single mom, but I played baseball all over New Haven and I could see in, 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 you know, kids don't talk about these things, but you could just see that the struggles of my mom worrying about making the rent every month and things like that were right. nothing right. compared to some of the people I was growing up with. And that's really for economic reasons. It's because the good jobs that had been there that had provided that kind of uplift suddenly had disappeared. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. My guest is Nicholas Davidoff, the author of The Other Side of Prospect. I want to follow up because we're wrestling right now, especially as we're coming into the midterms, the rise in violence in American cities, in American suburbs. It's a big, big point of contention during all these campaigns. So what led to the rise in terms of those neighborhoods that you know very well because you grew up in that area? I think one of the lessons of of this of this book for me, just personally, would be that everything is more complicated than 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 people sometimes think, and that we run into a lot of trouble as as a, as communities when we try and simplify or generalize things. So I could tell you quite a few things that I know about gun violence, but I do want to stress that gun violence is really really complicated. I would say that. Gun violence, certainly there's no gun violence without guns. And there is just undeniably much easier access to guns now in for younger people and, and, and older people. People who want guns can get them and they can get them fairly inexpensively. There's just, a, I think the statistic now is something like there's six guns for every citizen of this country out there right now. Um, that could be wrong, but it is some variant. If that's wrong, it's some variant of that, which to me is just an astonishing fact. But what is gun violence really? I came to think of gun violence as something that is the extreme expression of common feelings to, to uh, experienced by people who more typically gun people who commit gun violence are, are rare even in the most violent American communities very very few people commit violent gun violence but it's a little bit like shark attacks like right. off the coast of right. Massachusetts right. or grizzly bear attacks in in places like Montana it takes only a little bit of something like this to have a really really um, significant radiating effect people get scared very quickly when they hear that something has happened and when there are a few incidents over over a period of time that makes every Everybody much more afraid. It's just a fact. It's intimidating. And what is intimidating can also be a source of power. So you can think in communities where there aren't many sources of power or young people perceive it that way, that sometimes getting a gun can be a good move um, in, the sen in the sense of if, if your goal is to increase prestige. Most people don't commit gun violence. Most people who are experiencing frustration or anger or hopelessness, the idea that right over there, there's opportunity for other people and no opportunity for them might express it in all sorts of ways, every ways from love and family to sometimes drinking or sometimes drugs. There are a whole spectrum of ways that people respond to the emotions that contribute to gun violence. Gun violence, the people, most of the people who are typically involved in gun violence, and again, I'm generalizing, but people who are typically involved are people who've been first exposed to it. If you're exposed to gun violence, that contributes to you becoming involved either as a victim 
or as a perpetrator. And typically, researchers find that the people who are the victims are often the perpetrators, and that it's typically a small coterie of people who are in one way or another linked who are the main participants in it. So those are some those are some basic I think truths about neighborhood gun violence. Why it's increasing now is a great mystery among people who study it. Um, when I say mystery, it's not that people don't have some idea in anecdotal ways of why it's happening, you know. But what effect COVID really had? What effect, um, you know, a move for police reform may have had? What effect? Um, supposed releases. And again, you can't generalize because prisons and jails all don't operate uniformly, right. but releases from prison of people who might might have been, um, you know, had beefs that they bring back out into the world. How much of an effect all these things have had are things that people who really study this for only for a living talk about right now, but I don't think it's quite been resolved. But it is definitely true that COVID brought a rise of gun violence in communities. In a sense, your book is also a character study. I'm going to mention three names, and they're intertwined in a sense, and you can amplify on that. Pete Fields, Bobby, and Major. All the, the lives intersect in various ways, and also in the subtitles of your book, it's called Injustice. In terms of one of the characters, major injustice happened to him. Can you follow up on that? Sure. So when, uh, as a child, I mean, I, I remember standing one day out on a baseball field in Newhallville. I played baseball all over the city, which is how, as a boy, I got to know the city. And... I was standing there on that field and, you know, I, again, I didn't have to be told. I could just tell that some of the people who uh, were my opponents or who were teammates or people who were just coming to games were really struggling. And so I'm standing there on this dusty field as in my early teens and right across the way is Yale University, which is really paradise for young people. Right. And as a child, I just wondered how these two worlds could be so close and yet so far apart. I just wondered how this could be. And that made me want to come back and home, move back to New Haven, where I grew up and write about this. And in that's something conceptual, right? That isn't a story. And nonfiction writers write about the things that they do by integrating their thematic concerns with stories, with narrative. And the way I came to the particular story that the, that, that, that is the, I don't know, the, the core of this book is I got a call one day from a lawyer who said he'd heard about me and what I was trying to do. And he had a client and his client had gone to prison at age 16 for murder and he had 38 years. And the lawyer said he hadn't done it. Now it wasn't my place to really judge whether or not someone had done something, but I was interested. And when he invited me to his office where I went on a snowy Sunday, it was in the attic of a law firm and he was under the eaves and he had all these boxes piled up and he said, just have at it. You know, as I was looking through this case, it was obviously to me really, really interesting. It was a way in a sense through the various actions that led to this young person being sent to prison for this murder of an elderly man, 70 years old. Um, th through this, I could instantly see how it revealed something about the, the rise and then, all, then the struggles of a community. And so just to say quickly, you know, I went with the lawyer and I met his client and then I spent a year talking with his client and then I got to know the client's community. You know, this 
person named Bobby. And as I came to more broadly understand how Bobby had grown up, I came to understand how, if you grow up in an isolated community, if you're kind of stuck in place, how that makes you more vulnerable to all sorts of dangers. One danger might be a hasty police investigation. Right. Other dangers might be that people who are causing trouble are around you all the time. And you know them and you grow up with them and you have to measure them in everything that you do. And that brings fear, but that also brings also the possibility that the things that they do, you could potentially be blamed for it. And that's what happened to him. And so I, the other thing I would say is that the person who was murdered and he was a man who had a lot of money on him one day and he was sitting in a car on a gloomy side street waiting for his girlfriend to come downstairs. He's 70 years old and these kids ran up on the car and they wanted his money and he wouldn't give it to them. And so they shot him, but, or one shot him. Uh, and what I could say about that is that that man was sort of the, in many ways represented the first generation of people to come from South Carolina to the community. Yeah. He'd come up from a South Carolina farm and he'd come to New Haven and his family had bought a house in New Hallville and they did, he did well and he moved up and out and he lived in a town outside in increasingly bigger houses. But he used to like to come back to his old neighborhood, which many people do, where he'd meet up with friends he'd grown up with and they'd play cards and, you know, they'd talk junk, all the things. And it was just his misfortune to be, you know, on that day, something really, really bad happened to him. And what I would say about the younger people who were either implicated or very likely were involved is they all just represented a younger generation of South Carolina families. All three of the families that were intimately involved with this came from the same basic farming region of, of, of South Carolina. So it's these intertwined experiences, which, which, you, you know, change over time and the reasons for change I think at their core are economic. I want to mention one character. He's the one I think about a lot, even when I put the, when I put the book down, and that's Major. And I'm going to tell you why. He's almost a mass of contradictions. He's violent, but he's also has a lot of intellectual curiosity, and that comes out. And he's very protective of certain people, and he is murdered at a young age. But I still think about him, and I'll tell you why. In another time, in another place, he would have been really, really special based on his innate abilities. And he just he, – he stays – all the characters stayed in my, in my mind. But I think a lot about him. Tell us a little more about Major and what happened to him. So one of the things that <clears throat> caught my attention when I first came back to New Haven was that a group of kids had been arrested for building their own guns. And there was a I saw a photograph of the guns that they were building. And this was immediately interesting to me because New Haven had been such a source, as I've said, of uplift because this famous gun factory, the Winchester Gun Factory, was here. And that's where a lot of, you know, first generation families of and and more than first generation too. It's where a lot of families had their their source of income and uplift. And it was just so interesting to me that these kids were getting into trouble. They'd all been arrested. They were juveniles and they'd all been arrested for building these guns and it, they made them on their own. And if you looked at the photograph of these guns, it was astonishing the ingenuity that went into them. I mean, this was this was in a city where guns had been designed and refined. Here were what could be considered heirs to that kind of ingenuity. But instead, these were kids who were building them on their own and destroying their own lives by, you know, doing something that was, you know, going to get them into a lot of trouble. And I would just say generally that 
you, you ask about major and, and I, I thought of all the, the primary characters in this book is in their own way, of course, individuals, but also representative. Right. And what I came to feel about so many of the younger people that I met who had fallen into really serious trouble, many of whom I met in prisons, is that, as one kid said, nobody grows up straight bad that where you grow up and how you grow up has such an enormous effect on most people who get into trouble's lives. And there's so much potential in so many of these kids, which is then undermined by their feeling of hopelessness, their feeling that they don't have any choices, their feeling that of fear that they have to, for example, carry guns because somebody might come up and shoot them. And all of this is so destructive and counterproductive for what can we say? I mean, society, right? Because here's all this talent and it's going to waste. And when I say you, that I really, really don't like to generalize, it's because if you come to know people over time, as I hope I did in specificity, you come to see who this is the kid who, you know, is the wonderful history student who can take on subjects that were discussed in September about the early creation of the country. And he can think about them through uh, the semester. And then towards the end of the year, he can suddenly make reference to them as he makes comparisons to say pre Jamestown history with, you know, history after the civil war, it's kids, it's different kinds of kids who have a real feeling for, you know, psychology. It's other kids who have just an incredible understanding of how engines work. There's all this talent and ability out there, but there is something about the way a lot of these kids were growing up that they didn't see who they could be. And for me anyway, um, this is not a sentimental feeling for me. This is a really serious feeling in me that this is something in which society is failing young people. That so many of the young people who I met, sure, they are their own actors and they're responsible for their actions. And when they did bad things, most of them would own it. But they would also talk about the way they fell into doing those bad things. And I always, always thought it could so easily have gone another way. And as they got older in prison and became adults, I think they began to see that too. It was so interesting, for example, to hear the way they talk. Uh, there was a group of, of people who, some of whom I came to know, who had a reading group in the, in the prison where the character Bobby is sent. Right. Um, and they're, they're reading James Baldwin and they're reading uh, you know, Richard Wright and they're reading sociology. They're reading all sorts of things together and discussing it. And the sort of comradeship and search for deeper understanding and self-improvement was to me indicative not only of wanting to do better in life and make yourself better, but it was also just indicative of, I think what you're alluding to, which is talent yes, and just how dispiriting it is to feel that because you grew up on the other side of this street, it's much less likely that your talent will be recognized and that it will be nourished. And I would finally say that we hear a lot of stories about people who come out of prison and whose lives turn into these, you know, they're quasars, they're people who live these extraordinary lives. But that's really rare. Once you go to prison, it's like a worse variation of growing up in a struggling, isolated neighborhood, which is to say that your chances just statistically of doing well are so slim. And that's what also why recidivism rates or part of why recidivism rates are so high is because many, many people come out of prison never wanting to go back. I mean, what can we say? Prison's designed to be a place you don't want to be, right? And people come out and they have aspiration to do other things. But it's really hard if you've been in prison to to you already have this enormous sort of 
impediment that you're walking around with, which is that past experience. And now people want you to do really well in the world when everything about your life for the past number of years has been something that is to the contrary, is going to make your life harder. So there's a lot running through this. And when you ask about the difficulty of, of writing such a book earlier, I would say that because there are these many themes and ideas running through it, it took a lot of care and patience to maybe make it feel like a story, make it feel as though the, some of the things that I'm talking about are just naturally unfolding as facts of life and parts of life as you're reading a story about these this group of people. So here's my frustration. We only have a few minutes left, and I'd like to follow up down the road. You want to come back for some more conversation. By the way, my guest is Nicholas Davidoff. The book is called The Other Side of Prospect, a story of violence, injustice, in the American city. So I want to jump ahead to after 36-year or 38-year sentence, after nine years he gets out of prison, Bobby. What is his life like now? It was a struggle to get out. He still has to overcome a lot of things. So talk a little bit about that and where he is right now in his life. Okay. So Bobby has the terrible fortune of going to prison for wrongfully for something that he didn't do. And he spends all these years there. And then he has the then better uh, luck of having a lawyer who this lawyer, whose name is Ken Rosenthal, who hears about his case and works on his own for five years tirelessly. He keeps a little, keeps a little mat behind his desk where he has this yellow sheet, a little pillow. And at midnight, he'll knock off work and he'll go to sleep for a few hours. And then at four o'clock in the morning, he's back up at work. He worked tirelessly for Bobby uh, uh, because he believed in his case. And he thought that this was a kid who hadn't done it. And this was a kid he really, you know, he felt increasing admiration for it. He thought, ironically, for someone who was in prison because of a coerced false confession, he thought him one of the most frank, candid, and honorable people he'd ever met. And eventually, Bobby's released. But he's been in prison since he's 16 years old, right? Yeah. And he is a person who then comes out in the world, in effect, still 16, right? In, world, in real life experience, he's 16. And reentry, prison reentry isn't something that we as a society talk that much about, but it's a lot of people who are doing this. And Bobby's experiences were really representative because all the many difficulties that people experience, he, he seemed to check off everything in the list. It was incredibly painful to watch. And my job was, you know, to watch and to see what it, what, what was happening and how it was go, going for him, which for a long time was really rough. Now, I think his, his life, I mean, you can't go to prison as a teenager for something you didn't do and spend all that time there and not have it affect your life permanently. And so I think his life will always be affected by it. But, you know, so it is, it, it, it's, it's, I would say, emotionally still an up and down existence for him. So we have a few minutes left. You talk about how this has affected everybody you write about. Eight years you spent on this. You're doing interviews about the book, and I'm thrilled to have you join us on the podcast. Can you walk away with the story? You moved back to New Haven. As a child, you were in those schools on those ball fields. Is it hard for you to walk away, and how are you dealing with that as the writer became intimately involved in this story and some of the people you write about? You mean, is it hard for me to walk away from having finished the project? Finished the project and the fact that you had, you had a personal connection to the story and the community that you were involved with as a youngster. Well, you know, there are different schools of how people who tell stories for a living think about the stories they tell. And I think I'm on the side of the great documentary filmmaker, Frederick Wiseman, 
who always who always said that after a while when you're making something which requires really intimate and deep understanding of other people you can't help if it's going to be any good but come to feel some love for them and so for me of course i was immersed in this and i would be lying if i said to some degree it wasn't stressful because so many of the people who i was writing about had so much stress and pain in their lives it was also uplifting to see how they grappled with it and how and how much they wanted other people's experiences to be better than their worst experiences for me i always felt it was kind of it would be kind of unseemly if i was having a particularly blue day i'd be think well you're feeling bad imagine the people who are really living this how how they're feeling so i mean there was there was of course vicarious you know what can i say blues but I, I also would say that at a certain point with every project, there comes a time when the project has to finish. I mean, you're doing this not to spend your whole life doing it, but you're doing it because you care and you want that story to be out in the world. And I was very ready for it to be out in the world, and I'm glad that it is. And I am still in touch with a bunch of people from the project, as invariably happens with every project. Um, but I was also... I would say that it was, you know, the right time to move on to the next book. So we have about 90 seconds left. I'm going to ask you this. I know you've done a bunch of interviews. You're a highly respected writer. Has there been a question that should be asked that hasn't been asked yet of you when you talk about the book? I I don't know if it I, – I, wow, that is such a – it would take me more than 90 seconds really to think through such a, such a ingenious question. I, I don't think it's for me to say what people should ask me. It's more what people are curious about. And I guess one of the fulfilling things about this project is, is that I think it is about a subject which is often ignored, which is how it persists across generations. And when people ask me questions about it, I'm just glad that they do because that means on some level they're curious. And a project like this is done because you want people to care more and you think people would care more if they knew better. So I feel like if I've done my job well enough, I will create readers who are more invested in what I think anyway is something that a lot of people miss, which is a deeper sense of community. I think one of the things we talk about in the country right now is how the country's so cleaved. But in the time that I spent both in this community and also with the project that I'm worrying on working on currently, which took me all over the country so far, I just see that there is a great longing for American community. And while some of it is is nostalgic for something that didn't exist, it also did exist in ways. There were downtowns, there were places people loved to go where people knew the proprietor. I could go on and on. I'll start to sound really sentimental, but I think you know what I'm saying. I do know. Well, I want to thank you. My guest has been Nicholas Davidoff. The book is called The Other Side of Prospect, A Story of Violence and Justice in the American City. Nicholas, thank you so much. I appreciate all your time you gave us. It was nice to be here. I enjoy the rest of your day. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Awful Periscope. After the break, Mark Ebner joins us. Really interesting conversation, I hope. The book is called Off the Deep End. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Joining the conversation is Mark Ebner, co-author with Giancarlo Granda of Off the Deep End, Jerry and Becky Falwell, and the Collapse of Evangelical Dynasty. 
And Mark, welcome to the podcast. Larry Davidson here. Glad to be here, Larry. So I'm going to be very honest with you up front when I read this book. I finished it actually yesterday, so it's pretty fresh in my mind. And as an interviewer, I am thrilled to have a chance to talk to you. But as a reader, I find the book um, disturbing in a sense in terms – I don't think – there were many people in your, in your book, in this book, that have any kind of a moral compass and there's a lot of duplicity. So let's talk about my reaction to the book first as an interview. I think it's a terrific book. But more so just as a general reader, I didn't find anybody that I could kind of root for. They all were compromised in a sense. Can you react to that? Well, I would encourage you right off the bat to uh, find a way towards joining Team Giancarlo in all of this. Uh, everything else you said is fine. Yes, it is a disturbing story. It is. Uh, uh, that's a perfectly valid reaction. So tell us a little bit about the background of Giancarlo. In fact, if he was here, I would say the same thing in terms of my takeaways, my two oh, takeaways yeah. from the book. So who is he? Yeah, well, I I understand. And remember, in the realm of nonfiction, you go where the story goes. We're not necessarily trying to create heroes and likable characters here. So uh, yet at the same time, I have personally worked with Giancarlo Granda for over two years now, and I find him to be an immensely likable young man uh, who, when push came to shove, uh, you know, showing... uh, Certainly in the book, you will uh, read that he actually shows remorse and regret for a lot of the things that he said and did starting when he was 20 years old and Jerry and Becky Falwell bird-dogged him at his job at the Fountain Blue Hotel. You know, at that time, he was a 20-year-old young man who had not had a proper relationship yet. As good-looking as he was, he spent a lot of time at home, you know, on like many young creatures of the Internet do, playing video games to the point where he was addicted to them. So in to go on with his background, this video game in, uh, uh, addiction he was he is such an intelligent young man that he managed to um, hack his way out of that addiction, step out into the world at 20 years old and started trying to socialize. Uh, he was a good looking kid. He found out that, you know, young women were attracted to him. He started enjoying life. He got a dream job at the Fountain Blue Hotel as a as a pool attendant. Uh, You know, he's mingling with people that he could see himself becoming one day, you know, powerful business people. All and And to top it all off, he's making a good piece of cash in tips at the end of the day. But one day. There was a woman who was staring him down while he was doing his job with kind of a like come hither sort of attitude. And he found her attractive, uh, if not, you know, cougar-esque. She was certainly almost twice his age. Uh, But to him, she looked good in a a bikini. He went over to her. She told him that young girls, you know, uh, uh, have nothing on her and asked him if she would like to come up to his room. Now, Larry, I have to say, at 20 years old, I don't know too many young men who are going to turn down a Mrs. Robinson moment like that. 
if you'll, you know, pardon the reference, right? Uh, and he was like, sure, hell yeah. And then she paused and she said, well, my husband, he likes to watch. That's the one thing. Giancarlo was studying accounting at the time at Miami-Dade Community College. He was not studying cuck theory or cuckold theory. He had no idea what it was. He just thought it was weird. He finished his shift, went outside, called his sister, Lillian, you know, a big champion of his. And, uh, you know, you'll see her in the uh, Billy Corbin documentary uh, coming out on November 1st called uh, God Forbid. Uh, she said, you know, go with, have your adventure, John Carlo. Just don't get, you know, jacked up by a serial killer. And they laughed. And uh, his phone rang. It was Becky again. She said, listen, we're going to take it to another hotel. Uh, we're going to go to the Days Inn, a couple of doors down from the Fountain Blue. And they went there. And uh, and so it began. Mar Jerry, Mar Mar up? Yeah, let me just cut in because this gets back to my takeaway as a reader. Besides, I thank you so much because I know you've been doing a lot of interviews and you have a very tight window. He, yep. This happens once or twice. Yes, young men, you do the thing, the Mrs. Robinson thing. A lot of us remember the movie and the characters and everything else, and we can fantasize about what that means, younger man and older woman. Sure, this, sure. This went on for at least eight years. I get back to the fact, yes, once or twice, he is, and I know I got the sense you, you were like him and you work with him, very morally compromised. It didn't just happen once or twice. It kept happening and happening and happening. And the fact that right. the husband was watching them and recording them is also an interesting thing, too. And, yes, she was grooming him, but he had a chance to say no and step away, and he didn't step away. Well, you know, remember what, what's going on. What is he being shackled by? Well, before you know it, he's in business with Jerry. Because he's a smart kid and he uh, identified a, uh, a nice piece of property in South Beach, all of a sudden he's shackled to a 25% share of a multi-million dollar multi-purpose property in South Beach. That's a big deal. So the stakes are high in that business relationship. Now, uh, not only that, but he's being he's being courted into the corridors of, of power. He's meeting his hero at the time, you know, a, another real estate guy named Donald Trump. He meets Donald Trump at a convocation in uh, at Liberty University. He's being in, introduced and um, and indoctrinated into a world that he had never seen before, and he's going for the ride. But what it, he realized, if I can fault Giancarlo at all, no, I won't fault him, but I'll say that he realized too late that there was this unspoken blackmail, that everything in this wacky relationship that, he, that uh, they started with him was contingent uh, upon him satisfying uh, Jerry and uh, Becky Falwell's sexual desires. Look. You know, I'm not going to kink shame them here, but I will say this. The hypocrisy right there is outstanding because he was president of Liberty University, a school which will fine you for holding hands, having a drink, premarital sex. And if you do get pregnant, they're going to keep your baby. They have a godmother's uh, home there for such accidents. You know, this is the guy. 
And, you know, I, 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 I can only say that if you want to say, why didn't he get out when there's unspoken blackmail over your head due to the fact that Jerry Falwell's been taping their encounters since day one, and the threat of releasing that is over your head, uh, the threat of things going south with everything you worked for. He, he wasn't a passive partner in this uh, real estate project. He was he managed the entire place. So you see what I'm saying? He, it, I, I, it was, I, uh, I do. But do you, do you see how I how I'm questioning the fact that he he had at least three girlfriends you write about in the book. They changed the names. He had three failed relationships with them. Once again, along the way. And you say he's very smart. And I agree. Very good head yeah. for business. He sh and later on, it's a little bit of redemption, but it's much, much later. I think of the movie Sex, Lies and Videotape. Maybe his lifeline was he had access to phone calls, video calls, texts and emails. Did that kind of help him? Because there are, there's a lot of stuff going back and forth. A lot of people morally compromised, including the man you wrote about and wrote with. Right. Did this say, yeah, and did he this, fully admits it. Okay. And he apologizes for it. And he has remorse for it. Three qualities that the Falwells have never, ever expressed once. Jeff Becky Falwell falsely accused Giancarlo of sexual assault. And uh, that was in Vanity Fair. Just weeks later, a, a journalist from The New Yorker comes out and says, what about that accusation about sexual assault uh, the last time uh, uh, Becky and Giancarlo had sex? On the record, Jerry Falwell said, oh, we just made that up to try and kill this book. Okay? So, um, and when you when you talk about the idea that he had girlfriends, yes, he had three girlfriends. And I'm so glad, Larry, that you actually read the book. So often I'll get into conversations and shows where they haven't even read the back cover. He, he did have three girlfriends during, you know, the near decade that he was inextricably intertwined with the Falwells, but each and every one of them, the Falwells, particularly that sociopath Becky Falwell, stuck her hooks into them, you know, said things like, oh, this girlfriend, she's going to med school. Why don't we set her up with an internship at our local hospital? Draw them in, control them, collect stuff on Giancarlo that they can use later. You know, this was their whole modus operandi, and they destroyed all three of those relationships, which may may well have been a way out for him. As you're saying, why didn't he leave? So what I'd like to do now, you know, as we jump ahead, kind of give you the bird's eye view of the setting and the philosophy of Liberty University, because I think of Trump University, because there is a connection to all of this. And Trump, well, Liberty University, uh, because of the online people that they service, in a sense, no, that's, that's not, probably not the proper word, try to educate. It's a nonprofit making a tremendous amount of money, and that money went all over the place, probably also in terms of political persuasions and covering up a lot of things, because this book talks about a lot of cover-up, a lot of Jane Doe's that were on staff or students. 22 at last. 22. Yeah. So let's follow up with that. And might I add, I've, talk, I've spoken to a dozen of them, okay? And uh, 
you know, I've been in these, this situation. I was way out, way out in front on the Cosby uh, scandal where, you know, I was talking to victims where there wasn't an outlet in the world, including my own agent with a book proposal that would let me, uh, you know, talk about, uh, you know, uh, uh, America's, uh, what did he call himself? America's dad. Right. Right. You know, I mean, it, believe me, the pushback is, has been amazing in my career in stories like this. But um, with this, you know, there is no pushback. Giancarlo deplatforms Jerry Falwell uh, by the truths that are exposed in this book. Whether you like Giancarlo or not, you know, uh, that was uh, something he managed to do. Liberty University, you mentioned it's sort of like the... Uh, the 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 Trump Trump University. Yeah, well, it kind of yeah. re- it reminded well, me, not well, to the same degree, but that's what popped into my head. Trump Trump University. Yeah, I mean, look, I would argue it's 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 very much the same in that you know the online component uh, brings untold millions to the stewardship of a guy like uh, Jerry Falwell who can put gas in the Liberty University private jet at the very least for his uh excursions to you know miami beach or to greece or wherever he would go you know it's the classic grifter story right well um uh you know this is a school that i visited i spent a week there waiting for a sit-down possible with uh uh, Jerry and Becky, they never showed up from that. All they did was threaten me. Uh, you know, uh, Giancarlo's going to be sitting in a federal prison and you could be abetting him or something like that. And I'm just saying, let's sit down. Let's talk. No, they never showed up. So I toured the campus. And, you know, what did I see there? The tour guide it was a COVID denier. They uh, they walked us around a very beautiful campus as funded by the online component. And yet at the same time, and they encourage us to ask questions. This is how cults operate. Yeah, ask me anything. But as soon as you start asking questions, that's when they try and shut down. I said, give me some examples of academics going on at this campus. And my tour guide said, well, I like apologetics. You know what that is, Larry? I read the book, but tell the audience what it is. Yeah, apologetics is basically a course in defending your religion. You know, that's it. I'm still waiting for anything, you know, coming out of the, uh, God forbid, right, liberal arts or anything like that, you know, in this nonprofit profit university. I saw no evidence of that. You know, I also know that... Uh, uh, the Falwell partnered with that guy, Charlie uh, Kirk, this hard right, yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, right wing pundit of sorts. You know, this community college dropout who uh, was ostensibly the founder of a quote unquote think tank at university at Liberty University, which was at the end of the day in its short tenure was a uh, essentially a. Uh, a radicalization camp for evangelicals to the point where you can trace that guy's actions all all the way to 80 busloads uh, of uh, Ginny uh, Thomas-assisted uh, traitors 
on their way to the state capitol on uh, January 6th. And let me tell you something. You know, the scariest part of this of this whole thing is is the track that, you know, the wide-eyed Giancarlo Granda was on when he was younger. It could have been him. Right. So you let, know what I'm saying? Yeah, let me reset for a moment. Yeah. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast off podcast off of Periscope. And now is the book title Off the Deep End, Jerry and Becky Falwell and the Collapse of an Evangelical Dynasty. And my guest is the co-author with Giancarlo Granda, Mark Ebner. So right now, did the, did the fault, well, Jerry Falwell Jr., Jr., see himself as a kingmaker in, in terms of the university, more so the world of politics, because everybody thought the evangelical vote was going to go during the primaries when there were when many few candidates running for president and in the Republican nomination to Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz didn't get it. Donald Trump got well, it. So what was the deal behind the scenes that well, Trump without, got his without endorsement? Going into, without going into uh, too yes, you are correct. Ted Cruz was Liberty University's guy, okay? First of all, uh, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. had no business as a, a president of a university endorsing anybody. It's not how it works. In fact, you know, that's the kind of thing that could throw a lesser, less powerful university into 501c3 jeopardy. So, you know, it took some uh, doing to get that endorsement from Jerry Falwell Jr. and I would lay that all on one Michael Cohen who has essentially admitted that he set the table for that. I want to follow up with that because Michael Cohen is also fascinating and I think there's a disparity between this book and what was written about your co-author Granda with Michael Cohen's book. So in a sense, I think I remember this in the book, that at one point they were floating out to Falwell Jr., Maybe you can be Secretary of Education. And it ultimately went to Betsy DeVos, DeVos, who's also part of a political family, and she got it. And you can make whatever judgments you want about her as Secretary of Education. <laughs> was that was that thrown at them? Was that the little trial balloon that if you you go with us and put all your weight of all your evangelical followers behind us, maybe we'll put you in the in in the cabinet? Well, come on. It's always about quid pro quo. And uh, Giancarlo uh, asked Jerry about that. And Jerry's response was, all cliches aside, he said it's better to be a kingmaker than a king. And, you know, probably he, you know, he realized that, you know, things weren't going to change, you know, with the ways he operated. So uh, why would he risk that kind of exposure on the national stage? So here's another name. Here's another name that's really interesting because I have what I call all the president's men. And that's the names we've been talking about. But there's one name that's very surprising in your story, and that's Tom Arnold. How does Tom Arnold factor into all of this? Well, Tom Arnold's a gadfly, you know, he's a he's a comedian, a very successful one. People try and, you know, uh, write him off the same way they try and write me off when I'm babbling on podcasts and whatnot, you know, because I get, you know, I get energized. I get jazzed by the work that I put on the table. Right. Um, but Tom Arnold, you know, is virulently, it should surprise uh, no one as a father, he is virulently anti-Trump, and he was going after anything that sticks, and he coaxed uh, 
uh, uh, Cohen into a conversation, which he taped and released to the media. And uh, a lot of what uh, Cohen said wasn't true. He couldn't get his story straight, much like he wasn't able to get his story straight in his book uh, in prison where they don't have fact checkers. Um, but, you know, Tom Arnold is into the mix, and you can also see him in the God Forbid documentary coming up November 1st on Hulu. So, Mark, on a uh, previous episode of this podcast, I did an interview with Mark Arsenault, investigative journalist from the Boston Globe, part of that whole spotlight team. And, of course, they went after the, the Roman Catholic Church, church in Boston. Right on. What did, My hat is off. Yeah, great job. But also, you raised in the book there was there was a cover up with the Southern Baptist, uh, Baptist conventions. Uh, what do you know about that? What's been exposed, and can you can kind of follow up with that in terms of my audience, and maybe they're not aware of what's going on there in that particular church and sect. Well, there's just uh, you know a very serious investigation going on right now with the Southern Baptist Conference, uh, of which Jerry's brother, as uh, chief pastor at Liberty University, as well as the mega church, Thomas Road Baptist Church, which literally is connected up physically to Liberty University, um, you know, there's an, uh, you know, a scandal, you know, involving, uh, to my limited knowledge, you know, not just 22, which is an astounding number of victims to point to at uh, Liberty University, but hundreds upon hundreds of Title IX violations, Clery Act violations, and uh, claims of uh, everything ranging from sexual impropriety to uh, actual, you know, uh, claims of sexual assault throughout the Southern Baptist Conference. Now, that's a very long-winded way of <laughs> saying, you know, of answering what you asked me. Yes, well, they was, are under the lens right it was now. A, it was a long-winded question, and you handled it very, very well. Before we end every uh, segment of this podcast, I always ask, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? So, Mark Ebner, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? Uh, anything you missed, you know, is not your fault, I promise you, and, and you know, you read it, you have reservations about what you read, and I appreciate your honesty, but, I, you know, I hate to default to the book, but that's Giancarlo's story. He had every right to t tell it, he told it, and it's definitely worth reading because it's an important piece of nonfiction. What was the other part of the question? Well, you handle it. What did I miss? What did I get wrong? So certainly we, we, we didn't get into everything in the book, but you, you responded to that. And I just want to make sure I didn't get anything wrong. I, I want no, to be on the record. No, for God's sakes, Larry, I would come on again. And, in, you know, I, I, I'm just glad we had this chat. Uh, and, uh, you know, I hope it was enlightening for your listeners. It definitely was. The book is called Off the Deep End, subtitled Jerry and Becky Falwell and the Collapse of Evangelical Dynasty. It's written with Giancarlo Granda and its co-writer Mark Ebner has joined the conversation. Mark, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. My greatly. pleasure, Larry. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Same Take to care. you. After the break, a new edition of Rory's Island. We'll be right back.
The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Hi, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. And she's back, and we're thrilled with a new edition of Rory's Island. Here's Rory Vesey. Thank you, Larry. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was called to jury duty. And I was thinking ahead what questions they were going to ask me if I got picked. And I figured they would ask me, have you ever had any, any experience with the justice system? And I was thinking my answer in my head would be, hell yeah. And it wasn't good. Now, I was not in criminal court. I was in civil court. And I'm certainly not comparing it to the tragedy that the character in Nicholas David Hoff's book suffered. But I thought it was analogous because we all think that's, that's something that wouldn't happen to me. I have too much going on in my life. I'm educated. I'm smart. But when I became a defendant in civil court, I had to confront that feeling of being totally powerless in America. And how it started was... I had a lot of experiences with contracts, negotiating contracts, writing up contracts. So when I was doing a major renovation of a house, I had a very specific contract with a builder who was very unscrupulous, unbeknownst to me. But everything was clearly spelled out. And when he started asking for money that, for work that wasn't done, I started looking at things carefully and realized that he ordered material that he was using on other jobs, he put up an entire shower full of tile with sheetrock behind it that was not waterproof. You couldn't get access to the water. They had sheetrocked over it. They burnt wires. I didn't know any of this was going on. All I knew was that there were a couple of subcontractors that were complaining that they weren't paid. So I ended up having to fire him per the letter of the law of the contract. It was exactly as it should be. And the next thing I know, he places a lien on my house, sues me, and I have to defend the lawsuit. So I thought, okay, I got this already, got an attorney, had everything prepared. I had physical evidence that the subcontractors gave me. I had every minute detail. I set up the lawyers perfectly for this. We went for a deposition. I had an architect just knock everything this builder did. And I said to my lawyer, well, that's, that's good. They're going to back down and not sue. And he said, well, we just bloodied his nose today. They're, they're still looking for a settlement. And I thought, well, but look at what the architect said. Look at all the evidence we had. And the lawyer just said, well, we'll see. This is costing a lot of money. And the next day he called me and said, you know, you really should settle. Just look at it as a business decision. And I thought, how can I pay this man thousands of dollars more after what he did. But he said, all right, we could go a little further. So we get a court date that's going to be to set up witnesses. And I've got all these subcontractors who are actually willing to travel and testify, including one who is a part-time police officer and electrician. And I've got all this evidence and all these boxes lined up. And my lawyer goes to see the judge in chambers with the lawyers from the builder's side. And he comes out and he says, well, the lawyer said, the judge said, excuse me, the judge said, if he has to hear the case, he's just going to split the amount in half. 
And I said, what do you mean if he has to hear the case? He says, well, if you insist that he hears the case, I said, well, I can't pay this man half of what he's suing me for. I said, I have to make a few phone calls. So I went in the hallway and I grabbed a lawyer, just somebody who didn't know me, I didn't know him. And I told him what happened. And he said to me, you see these gray hairs on my head? I got every one of them thinking a judge really wasn't going to do what he said he was going to do. He said, my advice would be not to challenge the judge. He's going to do exactly what he said. He said, no matter how strong you think your case is, the judge is going to do what he said he was going to do. So I was forced to settle. And as I'm trying to process this, I figure we're going to go into the courtroom and we're going to sign some papers. And my lawyer said to me, well, you're going to go on the stand and I'm going to ask you, are you doing this of your own free will? And you're going to say yes and don't add anything to your answers. Because remember, this is the judge's courtroom. He can do anything he wants to do. So my reaction was, wait a second, you mean he's going to come out in the robes? And he said, yes. And I'm going to raise my hand and put it on the Bible next to the American flag? And he said, yes. I said, how can this be? This is a judge that refused to even hear the case. He said, welcome to the American justice system. And that's when I thought, here I am, and I'm certainly willing to accept the fact that I probably have some privilege because I'm white, but I'm also educated. I have a pretty good handle on the law for someone who's not an attorney. I've been involved in legal contracts and there was nothing I could do. I was totally at the mercy of the judge who for whatever reason decided he just didn't wanna hear this case. And I thought to myself, how can someone who has very little education, who may not speak English well, who wasn't born in this country, who's a different color skin, how can they possibly be treated fairly in the justice system? And this is why everyone, even if you're thinking after reading a book like Nicholas David Dorff's book, oh, this can't happen to me. Yes, it could happen to you. And that's why while courts are, are necessary and they're important, it's very important we know who's sitting on the bench and also the laws that hold the system up. Because if those things aren't in place, anyone can feel that powerless. And imagine if it's not only a financial issue, but it, it was your future and your family's future at stake, how all of this would feel. And that's Rory Vesey with another edition of Rory's Island. I want to thank Rory. I want to thank Mark Ebner. And I want to thank Nicholas Davidoff. I'm Larry Davidson. Till next time, bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, Sound editors and engineer Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. 
October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tired to her kitchen chair, she broke